Hey, what's going on? This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here for the E2 Perform podcast. And today I've got a very special guest, Mr. Eric Trexler. Say hi. Hey, Mike. How's it going? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good. And do you want to give the listeners some background on yourself here in case they haven't heard of you before? Yeah, they probably haven't. Um, so I, I'm Eric Trexler. I'm a doctoral student at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm in the Human Movement Science Program, and my research is basically, in a nutshell, how exercise and nutrition interventions affect performance and body composition. Awesome. One of my favorite topics. Yeah. Yeah. And then, what was your undergrad in? I think you did a master's also, is that correct? Right, yeah. I've done a whole lot of school. This is my uh, seventh straight year of coursework. Um, yeah, I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did my undergrad at Ohio State in exercise science, and then I did my master's degree at UNC in exercise physiology. And so now I'm technically in human movement science, but with my research focus, it's kind of a continuation down the exercise nutrition kind of path. Okay. And then for your doctoral, do you have like a couple studies that are lined out that we can kind of look forward to coming out in the future? Yeah, yeah. So um, I I know tonight we'll be talking about one that recently got published. But um, I mean, right now I'm working on about four different manuscripts that are in various uh, phases of production. Um, I've got a couple studies I'm planning for next year, but uh, the general theme is Um, basically figuring out how we can get better at measuring body composition and manipulating it. So uh, what can we do in terms of diet and exercise that can help us either improve body composition or perform better? Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. We'll we'll come back to the measuring body comp later in the show, too, because I know we get, oh, boy, tons of questions on that. Yeah, I'm glad. I I love talking about it. and I just wrote an article for Lane's new site about it because it's it's near and dear to my heart. Yeah, yeah, because it's even I've seen in the literature people who have gone through the extent of using MRI to determine body comp and the methods of doing the MRI analysis. There's still debate on it, so it's like even if you can, you know, get an MRI or something that's you know more advanced and more accurate than you know bod pod or underwater weighing or, or whatever. There's still, I think people would be surprised that there's still a little bit of disagreement on the exact method to determine it. So, I think we're on the same page. Yeah. Cool. So I was looking at uh, more research because I'm a big geek like that, which is probably why we're, we're chatting here. And most people may or may not know the research I did for my PhD was actually related to metabolic flexibility. And I was telling you before we got on the call that I had seen this new study come across and pulled it off. I was just looked at the title real quick. I was like, oh, it looks pretty interesting. So pulled it off in my Evernote folder to read later, grabbed the abstract, and then worked on getting the full study. And pulled it up again. I was like, oh, I know those people. <laughs> I remember we had talked about it at the ISSN meeting, I think last year too, if I remember right. So Yeah, I think it was last year. Yeah. So the formal title is Dietary Macronutrient Distribution Influences Post-Exercise Substrate Utilization in Women, a Cross-Sectional Evaluation of Metabolic Flexibility. 
So do you want to just explain a little bit about what the study is and then also how did this idea come about? Absolutely, yeah. So um, I know the title's a mouthful, but it's it's really a pretty simple, uh, simple topic at, at the root of it. But um, it's part of a larger study that Haley Wingfield recently published. Um, so this is kind of a little um, kind of tangent that we went off on. Um, so Haley's study, uh, which is already published in open access, was looking at, in women, how does supplementation before exercise uh, basically affect the metabolic response to exercise? And her study was a, a big undertaking in terms of we had a protein or a carbohydrate supplement before the exercise um, and we had three different exercise modalities going on. It was, it was real big. So what we were interested in looking at is, you know, forget the pre-exercise supplementation part, but there's a lot of research that indicates that what we eat on a habitual basis in terms of, you know, how much carbs, fats, protein, you know, there, there's good reason to believe that that will probably influence the substrate that we use when we exercise. And by substrate, just for people listening, you're talking about the fuel that we're actually burning, so to speak, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so for most of the cases, it's going to be carbs versus fat. Um, some protein is certainly going to get burned in there, but usually not a huge amount, um, aside from certain specific uh, circumstances. Um, but the idea was, you know, we have these subjects who are going to be undergoing uh, a high-intensity interval training exercise session. Um, you know, we have their body comp data. We're going to measure their estrogen if we look at what they tend to eat habitually, can we um, basically do a little cross-sectional analysis and figure out if there's a relationship between how they normally eat and what kind of, uh, what kind of response we see with their uh, substrate utilization or their fuel utilization. Which in theory um, would lead to better body composition, correct? Exactly, yeah. So you could look at it um, a couple different ways and you'd say, if you're able to optimize the substrates you use during exercise, um, it, it might help with body composition. It might also make you a little bit more efficient in terms of performance. So if you can only use your carbs when you really need to, um, you could see possibly a performance benefit there as well. Um, and basically, to, to kind of be brief, what we found is the data that we got um, – appears to be consistent with the idea that high protein intakes and low carbohydrate intakes are generally associated with better metabolic flexibility. Okay. And so just for a review, what kind of people were enrolled in the study? Was this the kind of active people or not so active? Yeah, so we had 20 eumenorrheic uh, females. Um, they were approximately college age. The, the average age was a little under 25. And they were physically active, which we defined as one to five hours per week of structured exercise, whether it's aerobic, resistance training, whatever. Gotcha. So they weren't really necessarily high-end athletes per se, but they're not you know, older couch potatoes sitting around either. The average, right. you know, this is, athletically yeah, this is, active college student. Yeah, this is your college or grad student age person who, you know, goes for a couple runs a week. Maybe they play soccer on Thursday nights. 
Yeah, that's the standard population that's easy to enroll in these kind of studies. <laughs> yes, it is. And the argument for that, too, and I use a similar population when I did a study on energy drinks, is that in the absence of a lot of other data, that's a perfect place to start, right? You don't need to get uber fancy if there isn't any current data on the question you're trying to answer. You know, get a, a semi-relevant population and see what you find, and you can always you know, repeat it on a different population if you like. So, Exactly. And, and it kind of, with a study like this, um, being a smaller part of a bigger project and being cross-sectional in nature, um, it, it's really, it, it limits the strength of conclusion you can draw from it mm-hmm. in terms of generalize. And it also, the real purpose is to try to identify uh, some promising patterns or some promising relationships and say, okay, next person up, go ahead and implement the full intervention because it appears that it'll probably be worth your time. Yeah. Cool. And when you say higher protein, lower carbohydrate, what does that kind of look like in grams for people listening in? Um, so what I'm... Some of the findings that we got were based on correlations, so um, it's hard to necessarily give that a range because it just means, you know, the higher protein tended to see bigger changes in their substrate utilization, or, you know, same thing, the lower carb intakes tended to see higher or larger changes. Um, For part of the analysis, we did divide into groups using a median split, so that's probably what you're referring to there. And so it's based on percentages of macronutrient intake. Because this wasn't necessarily designed as an intervention study, right? You didn't necessarily say, hey, here's this group. We're going to give them a whole crap ton of protein. And here's this other group. We're not going to give protein. You're just taking, here's the people that came in. Here's their diet log. And then we're looking to kind of see what you found, correct? Exactly, yeah. So it's not like we said, hey, you have to hit X grams of protein per day. Um, I can tell you when we divided by carbohydrate intake, the low group was about 41% of their diet and the high was about 57. Um, When we divided up by protein intake, um, slightly less variation, the low protein was about 13 and the high was about 20. Um, So that's another thing that is interesting when you try to generalize these findings is we found a pattern and that's without kind of manufacturing groups that are markedly different on Mm -hmm. these intakes. Um, So I I think it almost makes you a little, a little bit more intrigued by saying, wow, that's not even that drastic a difference in terms of intakes. And there still appears to be, um, there still appears to be a relationship there. Yeah, and what was the total calorie amount used for that? So if I do my little calculation for people listening so they have an idea, and a lot of people calculate their macros and stuff are used to thinking in terms of grams of, you know, protein, fat, and carbohydrate. Yeah, so, you know, I sent you a copy of the text. It's all in uh, all in table one. Ah, okay, I'll scroll down. Eyeballing it. Yeah, eyeballing it, I'd say the average average intake was probably between 2,000 and maybe 2,100 calories. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, I'd say probably 2,000 is probably about there if I'm eyeballing it. So my rough back of the envelope calculation is 
So 41% is probably around 200 grams or so for reference for people listening in. Gotcha. And in the study, before we get into a little bit more details on that and how it can be useful for people, um, why did you look at metabolic flexibility and what is sort of a basic definition you would use of metabolic flexibility? Yeah, so, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, we, I wouldn't necessarily say that we started out saying that we're going to look at um, flexibility. Metabolic flexibility as the term, we are more looking at how is this going to affect substrate utilization. So, you know, it could just be that the high carb group just utilize more carbs across the board. The reason that metabolic flexibility came into play uh, was because the pattern that we observed uh, seemed to be pretty indicative of this concept where, you know, at rest they were. Um, when we divided into groups, their substrate utilization was pretty similar, but we saw a pattern of utilization post-exercise that would seem to indicate that, for instance, the low-carbohydrate group, immediately after exercise, right off the treadmill, they were burning more carbohydrate, so they were able to kind of tap into their carbohydrate stores to a higher degree. And then in the time points after that, they also dropped even below the other group. So and it by kind of lower meaning same. they used more fat. Is that correct? You're looking at the RER value? Correct, yeah. Gotcha. So so what we found when we looked at when we started plotting out the data when we looked at the carbohydrate, the protein relationships, is not just that there was a difference in utilization, but there's a different pattern. And so we saw that, you know, for the low carb group, for the high protein group, we not only saw more carb utilization immediately following this really high-intensity bout, but they also were able to switch back into fat burning um, more quickly. Hmm. So that, that's why, you know, the, the term metabolic flexibility was was going to be pretty much unavoidable. And I know you asked me to kind of give a loose definition of that. And I'm sure anyone who listens to your podcast has heard it before, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I tend to drone on and on about it a fair amount. So, <laughs> yeah, you are the metabolic flexibility guy. Um, but but the general idea is the ability to alter substrate utilization in response to um, basically how much substrate is available. And you know, to break it down in, into even simpler terms, it's just how efficiently you can switch back and forth between what fuel you're utilizing. So if someone is very metabolically flexible, uh, what would happen if they ate a bunch of carbohydrates in terms of what fuel they would use? Right. So, yeah, somebody who's metabolically flexible at rest, you know, they're mostly burning fat. And when they eat a, a have a high carbohydrate load, whether it's from food or, you know, in an experiment and they inject a bunch of glucose, um, you see that they can respond to that challenge quite well and they start utilizing carbohydrate very efficiently and very quickly. And that's usually mirrored during exercise also, correct? If you take them from rest to, like in this study, in pretty high intense intervals in terms of fuel usage? Yeah, so you, I'm not sure if you've looked into the exercise-specific data on metabolic flexibility, but there's surprisingly little out there. Very little. Yeah, but I would say that that would be the intuitive 
the intuitive way to phrase it with exercise is, yeah, when we crank you up to a high intensity, you're basically able to tap into the, the carbohydrate, which would be kind of the ideal fuel that you'd want to use in that situation. Yeah, and I have a little pet theory about <clears throat> exercise and metabolic flexibility that the assumption is that everyone in the study is kind of quote-unquote average, right? So if you enroll, let's say, 25 people in your study, the assumption is that they're all going to kind of follow the nice, neat crossover effect, right? So you assume that at rest, you know, they're going to be burning a lot of fat, and if we have them do high-intense exercise, they'll be burning more carbohydrates. And and in general, the data supports that if you look at the means and the averages and everything. But if you look at the individual studies where they break down the response and actually report it per individual, which unfortunately is pretty rare, a lot of times you can find sort of little outliers. You'll find that the one person at rest, you know, instead of burning mostly fat, they're already burning mostly carbs. But if there's only one or two of those people per study, yeah, you know, they're not really paying attention to it and that doesn't really affect the mean a whole lot per se. So Absolutely, yeah. And I um I kinda share your thoughts that I wish um I wish that more individual data were reported. Um, it, it's very difficult to do numerically, but what I've started do, to do with my papers is, when possible, I'll start to incorporate that into some figures. Because mm-hmm. um, I think you can do that without droning on and on about subject 13 and subject 21. Um, so, yeah, it's I think graphing capabilities are making it such that it, it's very it's becoming much easier to do that. So I'm hoping that um, other researchers will become equally uh, equally excited about the possibility of starting to really demonstrate those in figures that don't look totally messy. Yeah, because I've even reported it in one of the studies I did in the past, and I had it below the figure because I wanted to show, you know, the range that we had for, you know, just a couple basic points, and they're like, oh, it looks horrible, take that out of there. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, but yeah. that's like cool data. They're like, no, nah, it's already shows up in your statistics. Don't worry about it. I'm like, oh man. <laughs> yeah, and and that's what's funny is you know they'll say, well, you already you know you reported the standard deviations, right? So who cares? People can tell, but there's just something different about when you see the individual plots and you start to really contextualize the the variability outside of just a single number, you know. Yeah, and the one thing I always ask people, you know, who've done a lot of work with metabolic hearts, so for listeners who aren't familiar, a metabolic heart is where you do some exercise, you got this big tube they jam in your mouth and you drool all over yourself, and it basically will measure a whole bunch of stuff, but it's looking at the use of oxygen and then also looking at carbon dioxide. So it determines what fuel you're using, fats or carbohydrates, which is on a sliding scale, gives you some other cool numbers. Um, but when I was in the lab, we had to do that, and not only for the studies I did, um, but also I ran the lab for undergrads. So undergrads would, would come in, we'd give them practice, you know, using the metabolic hearts, and they'd be running all their own exercise uh, tests on everyone. And this, you know, cycles through, you know, a couple hundred students at least a quarter. And it never failed that pretty much eh, one or two, and these are, you know, healthy age, college, you know, active students. They're not, you know, overweight, sedentary adults. I remember one lady came in, one gal, and she got on the treadmill and just low intensity, just doing the warm up. 
And I'm looking at her RER. So the RER is the respiratory exchange ratio, which tells you the percentage of fat to carbohydrate. And it's showing that she's burning mostly carbohydrates. And I'm like, what the heck? And I said, well, you know, did you, you know, fast overnight? I figured, ah, she forgot, you know, ate, you know, a bunch of stuff on the way to the lab. And she's like, no, I was fasting for 10 hours. It's like, huh. Um, so I said, do you mind if we, you know, bring you back in a couple weeks later and repeat the test? So we checked the cal, machines cal, all the rest of the tests. That day went fine. Comes back in two weeks later, exact same thing again. <laughs> so it's yeah. that that to me really kind of drove home the point that there is probably a lot more variation in what people are using as a fuel than what we think there is. Um, and a lot of times we just assume that, well, this group of population, they'll, you know, they'll kind of be about this average or the, you know, they'll creep closer to one direction or the other. Um, but you do see kind of more stark, you know, outliers, which makes you wonder what's going on with, you know, that person's physiology, you know, because it's clearly different than, you know, everybody else. Yeah, definitely. And I, um, I'm a little bit conflicted because I'm, uh, much like yourself, I play the role of researcher and then a little bit of practitioner work along with that and it's really hard um once you've kind of had your hands on a few data sets um realizing that i know what the average response is supposed to be for my client but i don't know if they're going to be that weird data point yeah you know what I mean? so <laughs> it's like um it's like you, you put so much stock into all these means that get reported in every paper you read, but you always have to keep in mind what's a realistic amount of variation. Um, and sometimes it, it's really hard to tell, like, is my client not doing what I told them or are they an outlier? Mm -hmm. And I wish I had a good method for finding that out, but <laughs> you just have to, you just have to play it by ear. Yeah, and that's the hard part about when you're dealing with people in the real world because a lot of times it's not, you know, as controlled, right? So in, in research, we can do all these crazy controls. We could put people in, say, a metabolic chamber and we measure all the food that comes in and their movement and all this fancy stuff. And it's kind of cool to get sort of mechanistic ideas of what's really going on and you get some pretty cool data from it. The flip side is you can argue, and rightfully so, is that that doesn't match anyone's life at all, right? And then yeah. you do a study that's more sort of population-based where, you know, you control the things that you're looking at, but you allow them to have a normal life. They come into the lab. They're not living there in this controlled environment. And it's much harder to get, you know, really detailed and mechanistic stuff from that because who knows? Maybe they did something different that day before they came in that they were completely unconscious to you. They're not, you know trying to lie to you when they're there they just didn't know they did it you know so it's i think we always need a combination of both and there's a lot of critics on both sides that um so when i did the energy drink study they're like well that's just you know you, you should have had much tighter controls and controlled this this and that but you also have to make the study practical you know like in that case and in your case you're asking people to come into the lab you know three four five times you know, a lot of times you're not paying them much money, you know, to do it. And, you know, you're kind of, you know, hoping everything kind of works out within the controls you've set up ahead of time. And if you make their life, you know, horrible for the next, you know, five weeks, well, no one's going to finish your darn study either. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, I, I was, yeah, I'm right there with you where it's, 
Um, either way, if you're really sensitive to people critiquing your study, you're going to lose. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> the tighter you go with the controls, the less ability you have to generalize, mm-hmm. typically to the real world. And then the more close you get to real life, then people say, well, you didn't control enough. So yeah. um, I think that I've wrestled with that concept many times in my head. And I think uh, the most important thing you can do as a researcher is not oversell what your data is telling you. Yeah. You know, so when, when we talk about the meta, metabolic flexibility paper, you know, right off the bat, I say, hey, this is cross-sectional data, you know? We, we, we can't necessarily say that, you know, oh, it was definitely the protein because we controlled everything else, right? So as long as, as, long as you're just uh, kind of straight up and have a good interpretation of what your data is telling you, I think that's the only way to, uh, to feel like you come out ahead on that. Yeah, no, I agree. And one of the other things that gets brought up all the time is like, well, well why didn't you use elite athletes? You know, and so if <laughs> yeah. I went down at the U and I, I talked to Cal Dietz a lot about this, you know, it's like if, if I walked in there and said, I need a group of your elite athletes, I'm going to have them do this specific thing for four five, six or eight weeks, not your programming, something entirely different. He's going to tell me to go jump in a lake politely because, you know, oh, yeah. his job is dependent upon getting his athletes the best result he can. His job is not dependent upon sending me athletes to test and screw with his training. <laughs> so yeah. it becomes a, a hard thing to do in practice, too. Yeah, you got to be realistic. And actually, it's funny that the timing of this. Um, this past weekend, I had, a, uh, I had a conversation with a strength coach down in Coastal Carolina. And his name's Taylor Jones. He works with their football team. And he is... He's really great. I mean, he is pushing. He wants researchers to collect every ounce of data they can on his guys. And we're having a discussion about why other coaches don't feel the same way. And he said, I honestly think a lot of guys don't want to know what they're doing wrong. Yes. You know what I mean? It's it's not just that they don't want to waste the time and they don't want to deviate from their their program. But if they're wrong, they really don't want to know. And yeah. I think that's what separates the good ones is that Taylor was like, if I'm doing something wrong, I want to know immediately, you know, I, I don't want you to sugarcoat it. So, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's tricky to get those elite populations. So sometimes you got to sample, um, what's practical, especially if somebody has to, uh, defend the data and graduate. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, last comment on this and we'll move on to the next topic. Um, I've often thought with that, if you can send a researcher over to the coach who's okay with them being there and figuring out what methods are they using can they you know just measure the study that they've already implemented you know maybe they can do hrv maybe they can do some non-invasive measurements that don't necessarily screw with their training also you know but that takes a lot of you know like you said cooperation between you know the coach and the researcher um your questions of what you can ask are going to change and like you said a lot of coaches don't really want to know if something's not working, you know, because that makes them look bad. So, yeah, cool. Um, so, if you were to sum up the study for someone who is reading this and goes, "Oh, okay, that's that's kind of cool," a bunch of substrates and all this other crazy egghead type stuff. If you were to kind of walk out on a limb and speculate a little bit, um, what would you say that this study provides? Um, 
any actionable information or based on this would you have people who are training for more body composition would you have them do anything different um yeah so since it is cross-sectional it you're kind of in this funny gray area where on one end you're very cautious about generalizing at all and on the other end it's so vague you say man i could take this 100 directions yeah. right um so i would say the if I were to give it a single conclusion statement, it would say that these data indicate that a higher protein and lower carbohydrate um, in, in terms of percentages of your diet, it would appear that they have a pretty favorable effect on substrate utilization and high-intensity exercise. Um, and that's chronic intake. That's not right before you. Um, so I, I think the takeaways... Would these results look favorable for body composition in theory? They would. Um, could they maybe relate to the idea of training on low carbohydrate avail availability? I think they could. Um, you know, I think it's possible that what we're seeing is the low carbohydrate group is um, kind of experiencing some of those benefits that are starting to kind of leak out into the literature when it comes to training on low carbs some of the time. Um, but ultimately, I'd say that the, the, the data indicated a pretty good, um, pretty positive effect when it comes to um, trying to get an idea of how it relates to body comp or just saving your carbohydrate and using it when you need it in terms of performance. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that would be my, if I try to go out... <laughs> Uh, but you can tell I'm so afraid to say something that's not accurate that I'm, like, tiptoeing a fence there. Oh, yeah. I, I get lots of interesting emails from people on that stuff all the time. <laughs> but, yeah, but what, what I would highlight, honestly, is what, what was really refreshing about seeing the results come to form is that they do kind of fit my general, um, you know, what, what I totally base my macronutrient um, intakes on this, I wouldn't. But I think it falls in line with the general concept that, first of all, you got to eat enough protein. Um, I, I think that we're starting to see across the board, whatever population you're working with, you pretty much, unless you have a, a huge kidney issue pre-existing, try to get plenty of protein in. And then carbohydrate intake, I've always felt you got to match it to your activity level. And there may be instances where training on low availability might be beneficial. So there's my uh, my more bold concluding statement. Yeah, very cool. And you know, like I said, just on my little calculations here, even in the lower carb group, they're still looking at about 200 grams of carbohydrates per day. So it's not like these are ketogenic or like super crazy, you know, low carbohydrate. They're lower than the other group, but they're not. I would say like you, you licked a prune and there's your carbohydrates for the day. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I've, uh, I've actually done a ketogenic diet for quite some time. I think I did it for about six or seven months uninterrupted. Um, so, so I know all about that game. But, yeah, I, it's important to highlight, and it's what I, um, what I mentioned in the discussion section, is that mm -hmm. this is not, you know, a very low-carb diet and that, you know, before people say, well, if you do this diet um, or if you match these macronutrients, then your your high-intensity performance is going to suffer. Um, and, and I don't think we're 
quite low enough to make that conclusion. Yeah. In your sort of personal opinion, probably more speculative, would you time your carbohydrates to more around, say, a heavy weight training session if you're going to do uh, an hour pretty heavy weight training, you know, maybe you throw in a, a finisher of 20 minutes in there? Would you have more carbohydrates before and after that type of training? Uh, I, I would say that that's probably a pretty safe way to go. Um, I think usually across the board, talking with people, the general recommendation is if, if you have to be um, frugal, I guess, with your carb allocations, if you have to really keep them low, you definitely want to prioritize it around the workout. That's kind of a general consensus. Um but like I said, there, there is some data emerging that would indicate that maybe there's something to the notion of training on low carbohydrate availability, you know, now and then, you know, maybe one to two times a week. Um, you certainly won't want to do all your training on low carbs because that's uh, not going to be the ideal route for you. Yeah, and you're talking about uh, weight training on low carbohydrates, correct? Or more of the high intensity type exercise? Right, yeah, you, you would want to make sure if, if you're, I'll put it this way, if you're doing high-intensity stuff, weights, sprints, whatever, and you're hoping to operate at a high level, you're going to want to put your carbohydrate around that bout for that particular bout. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's a lot of very interesting literature on the, you know, train low, compete high, and uh, Luis Burke has done a bunch of that work, John Holly, and it's I find it very fascinating, but I think the studies probably have to run a little bit longer. And then one of the uber-geeky things in the weeds that people forget, too, is that if you do um, pretty high-fat, very low-carbohydrate diet, let's just say chronically, and then you expect to refeed someone a piss-ton of carbohydrates before they do their performance, you know, there's also down-regulations in your ability to use carbs because they've been so low for such a long period of time too. So I think that's also kind of one of the issues when you look at it from more of um, a chronic type sense also. Yeah. And I, I think that's something to keep in mind when you look at the findings of our paper that we've been talking about as well is, um, you know, I don't expect, you know, if we had people that were, you know, five, 10% of their calories from carbs and they were really doing that and they were doing it for, you know, a few months in a row, um, you know, we probably would have seen that they really struggled to tap into carbohydrate when they did the, the high intensity bout. So it's, um, with carbohydrate, it's tricky. It, it's, it's a matter of finding the right balance. And I think that balance is, is not necessarily going to be the same across the board. You know, you kind of have to individualize your recommendations. Yeah. Um, so one quick question about your ketogenic dieting experience. Are you still doing that or what did you find from it? I'm not. Um, so I was really intrigued. I remember the ISSN conference the year before last. It was crazy. It felt like every other talk was about the ketogenic yeah, diet. Yeah, it was pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, there was probably four different lab groups that were just talking keto down there. And I was intrigued by it. And, um, so I said, you know, what the heck? And I was actually at the time was dating somebody who was on a ketogenic diet ah. and good luck, uh, trying to plan a date 
for dinner. <laughs> if only one of you are ketogenic, it's like... Good luck with all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're just like, where in the heck are both of us going to eat? So um, so I tried it for, like I said, six or seven months. Um, I felt, you know, who knows how much is in your head, but I felt like I had really great energy throughout the day. Um, I felt like my appetite was much better. I'm, I'm generally inclined to be hungry all the time. Okay. Um, so I definitely saw some effect of suppressing my appetite, but I noticed my performance in the gym in terms of weight training, um, there's an abrupt drop off, you know, when they say, Oh, well, you're just adapting to it. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, okay, well, it'll come back. It'll come back. And I really never felt like I ever got back into my top gear. Um, and, and you know, I felt, you know, I kept kind of dragging it out and dragging it out, and I just never felt like I got there. So I have no um, no ill feelings against keto, but it's probably not the route that I would take if I were, for me personally, yeah. based on goals in the weight room. Yeah, I mean, that's been kind of my experience. I've never gone that long, to be perfectly honest, because I just couldn't hack it and... <laughs> I know people are like, oh, you just got to suffer longer and more, and I don't know. Maybe I'll try it again at some point, but I just couldn't hack the performance drop. <clears throat> maybe I didn't do it long enough. Yeah, maybe I wasn't in full ketosis. Who knows? Um, but I've worked with a fair amount of clients who've come in, and pretty much the the standard story I hear from them is, yeah, I was doing great for four to eight weeks, and then I was started. I was doing CrossFit, and it was awesome, and I was losing body fat, and everything in the world was wonderful. And then all of a sudden, almost sort of like, quote-unquote, overnight, and then I felt horrible, my performance sucked, and everything was horrible. And <laughs> yeah. So I I don't know of anyone so far, and I'm granted I'm sure these people exist, who does a lot of high-output glycolytic work who's on a ketogenic diet. I mean, the, the people I know who are on a ketogenic diet who still lift, like you know Dom, D'Agostino, and other guys, if you watch their lifting, they're moving some pretty heavy loads but it's pretty long rest periods it's not what i would say very extremely metabolically demanding from an energy system standpoint and i think yeah. if if your nervous system is kind of wired that way and you can do that a fair amount and take long rest periods i think you may be able to get away with it but i think once you start getting into the you know the higher reps and more the lactate area i think it just seems to just crush people so yeah, most of my training, generally speaking, is more bodybuilding oriented. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, you know, those sets of 8, 10, 12 reps and maybe a minute, 90 seconds between reps. Yeah. And it doesn't take long doing that on keto before you, you're really feeling like, like hey, these, uh, these energy systems are pretty important, aren't they? <laughs> hey, and so, yeah, I, like I said, I... I have no ill will against the ketogenic diet. If somebody tells me they're on keto, I don't think they're an idiot for it. But, um, you know, I tried it. I felt like I stuck it out for, you know, a really fair amount of time and basically just said I still find it to be an intriguing uh, metabolic state. Oh, definitely. I mean, from the science aspect, it's really cool. But, um, but I have uh, put carbs back into my diet, and they're probably here to stay. Yeah. Yeah, and I think with exogenous ketones as a supplement, that changes everything a lot too. And I think we'll see 
a lot more information on that and one thing i've done with a little bit more advanced athletes is have them use that before a very lighter aerobic type session that's semi-fasted so you're trying to you know increase the ability to use fat but not have their performance drop and then the next day is a maybe a weight training day which is a much higher carbohydrate day so i think with you know things like that you may be able to kind of get hyper specific with energy systems without having to go through and kind of suffer for you know six to eight to however long to get adapted and some people say you know months the study volick ran people were in it for years before they were tested so yeah and i just i just haven't been convinced yet based on published data that you know if you're doing ultra endurance i think performance you you can you can make that up but i just haven't seen anything you know like we said the high intensity glycolytic type stuff where people say oh yeah they did just fine with it um I just, I haven't become convinced of that yet. Yeah, and I would agree with that too. And last point, and we'll shift into body composition real quick. Is yeah. Even people say, well, what about those people that run marathons? I'm like, well, again, depends. If you're your average marathon runner and you're running at an average pace, yeah, I think you can make an argument to do more things to increase the ability to use fat. If you're an elite marathon runner and you're one of the top, say, 100 in the world, you're running really damn fast. <laughs> you're yeah. probably using mostly carbohydrates, and there's studies that show that. You know, so in that case, you're probably shooting yourself in the foot. You know, so again, it depends upon what's your goal, what's the intensity, all those things. Yeah, the good thing is it's it's going to keep guys like you and me really busy because yeah. when you start to really get into the details of energy systems and how nutrition affects substrate utilization. Um, it, it you can drive yourself nuts thinking of all the ways to tweak this and, and combine those things. And I mean, you know, you asked me for a quick summary of our study and I just kind of danced around these words for about 90 seconds. So, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's complex stuff and it's, you know, for, for people like us, it's fun stuff. It's interesting. Yeah. And so you had mentioned shifting gears here about body composition. And one of the questions we get a lot of times and rightfully so is, you know, I had, you know, Dexadun or Bod Pod or things of that nature, and they'll see sort of different results. Um, and one thing I did when I was at uh, the U of M, I think within a period of three days, I measured my body composition, I think six different ways. So I had like skin calipers, I did underwater weighing, I did uh, bioelectrical impedance, um, Bod Pod, Dexa, probably one other one I'm forgetting. But, and it was amazing to see how big of a difference there was between all those. I think if I added all the measurements up, it was like a eight to 10% spread from one to the other one. Um, so I understand why people, you know, rightfully get um, confused on that. So if someone is at a, let's say exercising at a gym, doesn't really have access to maybe research grade equipment, is there one method that would be better than another for them to, to keep an eye on their body composition? Yeah, I think um, that's a loaded question. Um, so I'm doing a study right now where we're doing a lot of different assessments, you know, multiple ultrasound tests, BOD, POD, DEXA, um, you know, bioelectrical impedance, the BIS with the the electrodes you actually fix to the skin. Yep. 
Um, so we're doing a lot, and it's the same thing. Every time I go over their results with a subject, we see, oh, we had you at 30 on this, you were 36 on that. Um, when it comes to the individual, I think the most important thing is understand that you're looking, the number you're getting kind of indicates a range just based on the error associated with the test. And especially for an individual, because we might report the error for a method on a group of 30 people, but the fact that you did it 30 times really compresses your error. Yeah, much, so, much smaller. Yeah, so, you, I mean, you know, if, if your group error is only, you know, plus or minus 2%, your individual error can be upwards of 4% in either direction, mm -hmm. which means we have a range, basically, of 8 percentage points for any individual. And so if you get 16, you're like, well, where, where the heck does that really put me? Yeah. In terms of that sliding scale of eight points. So I usually tell people if they say I want a body comp measurement, I say, first of all, I won't give you any more advice until you acknowledge that you're getting a, an estimate <laughs> of a range, you know? Um, and then I say, use the method that's going to be convenient for you, that's not super expensive. If you're going to get it more than four times a year, they probably won't let you do DEXA. Yeah. Because with DEXA, there is a radiation dose. Um, but, you know, for most people, really, I mean, take your pick. If it's bod pod, if it's skin folds with a, with a, a skilled tester, you're going to be fine. Um, if it's skin folds with someone who's not skilled, you're just getting a <laughs> random number. Yeah. I've um, seen you move almost more accurate by throwing darts at a board. Yeah, and I, the thing that I <laughs> find really funny is, like, Sometimes I feel like a body weight scale and, and two eyeballs is about the best estimate you can get. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, if, if, you, if you look Pictures. at somebody, especially when you get leaner, mm -hmm. you know, it's some, you know, it's hard to eyeball the difference between thirty four and thirty eight percent. But you know, when you're if it's for a physique athlete, I think eyeballing is the best way to go. Um, but yeah, I think just choose any one of the. The fairly reliable methods, um, bod pod, DEXA, underwater weighing, a talented skin fold tester. Um, the one that I'd really encourage people to stay away from is the BIA. So kind of the handheld electronic devices. Um, they're just too influenced by hydration. I mean, they jump all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I've got one of the scales that does BIA, and I, I bought it just more or less as an experiment to see. And it's pretty good, actually, for determining changes. It's not, I would say, uber accurate, per se. And I know they get a little sneaky in the software, and they only allow X amount of change from one day to the next. So a lot of it is kind of artificially given so it you know, makes the number look a little bit better compared to what the raw data was actually going to show you um what i found is if i'm doing it daily and i get up and i do it in the exact same condition and generally humidity is about the same surface interactions around the same it's okay right because you're just looking yeah. for you know sort of objective general changes and once you have it it's cheap you know it doesn't cost you any more to do the measurement um, but i definitely agree that in, even in the lab when I was there, I had the fancy ones where you put the little electrodes on it and the, the unit was like five or six grand or something. It was pretty spendy. 
And I tried it on multiple different occasions, just coming into the lab first thing in the morning, fasted, same conditions. And that thing was all over the map, you know, when you actually pulled the raw data. So it's to it be very variable. Yeah. And if you want to have fun with it, uh, purposely dehydrate yourself, yep. get yourself a little pre-post <laughs> it, it'll go nuts. Um, but um, I would say if you're someone who's concerned about your bone density, then obviously DEXA can be really great for that. Um, if you see a huge price difference where somebody wants to charge you a boatload for DEXA, but you can get a bod pod on the cheap, mm-hmm. I, if you're just looking for a body fat number, I'd probably say the bod pod will, will get the job done. So the one other thing I want to mention and not go on and on about it. Um, Bill Campbell down at USF, he really likes using um, he really likes using ultrasound, and he's like, honestly, I don't even really need an equation. I'm just going to measure the subcutaneous fat. Yeah, you know what I mean. So if if I measure your fat layer and you went from 13 millimeters to 11 millimeters, you got leaner. Mm-hmm. So if I'm only trying to track change, I really don't care about what equation I'm plugging that into. I just want to see, do you have less fat? So I think there's some merit to that, especially when it comes to just tracking change. And if you're not worried about an exact number that you're going to post on Facebook and tell everybody, hey, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm not body fat or whatever. Yeah, no, that's a good point because um, I know Dr. Brad Schoenfeld just, I think, published a study on that using the Intellimetrics, I think, uh, ultrasound, which they're like, I think, 1500 bucks for the non-commercial one. I, so relatively inexpensive in terms of getting closer to laboratory-type grade equipment. And yeah. your, your point is well taken. The first time I had underwater weighing done, uh, I was like, oh, my God, I'm a fat bastard. Because it was like 7% off like the skin calipers I had <laughs> done before. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, this is weird. So I go and have the skin caliper done, and the skin caliper was pretty close to where it was before. <laughs> and yeah. then what's even more scary is if people dig super far into the, the history of underwater weighing, there's some of the charts for um, basically the amount of air that's in your lungs, right, which they call residual volume. So for yeah. people who are listening, you basically take someone, you put them on a scale, and you stuff their head underwater, and you tell them to exp- you know, expel all their air. Um, so if you ever go in and they only give you like two chances to do that, you're probably going to be off, right? Because it's, it's a weird skill to try to ex- get all of the air out of your lungs with your head stuck underwater. You know, it's not something you normally do. So you'll watch people get lighter and lighter, or I'm sorry, heavier and heavier, and uh one of the, the conversion tables we use for just estimating residual lung volume, I don't think, and everybody uses it, I don't think it's even ever been published. you know. And then you go back to, well, how did they figure this stuff out initially? It was like five cadavers, I think, is <laughs> where it actually came from. So yeah. it makes you kind of wonder the deeper down the rabbit hole you go. Yeah, I remember I had a professor who was adamant about there's some equation re- – relevant to heart rate and exercise intensity that like i think it might have even been just the generic 220 minus age yeah um but he was like if you can find where it was published let me know because i've been looking for years and i don't know where it is but i don't don't know if it was that exact one but yeah you find that stuff every now and then where you're like wait a minute 
we've been doing this for 30 years. You mean it never actually went under <laughs> review? Yeah. Yeah, and even on the calibrations for metabolic hearts, if you go super far down the rabbit hole on trying to verify that the RER is what it says it is, it's not very pretty. Yeah. <laughs> it's just scary. Um, yeah. Cool. But, yeah, I mean, the uh, what you were saying with ultrasound, though, personally, I find ultrasound to be extremely exciting. I do a lot of work with the A mode that Brad has. I do a lot of work with the B mode. Oh, nice. Yeah, the B mode is... I, I've said whenever I get a faculty job, if you just give me a B mode, I can collect everything I want to know hmm. for the most part. So um, I think the future is bright when it comes to applying ultrasound to body comp because if you have a B mode unit, you can look at whatever the heck you want. It's pretty cool. And have you found that that's much less um, dependent upon the skill of the person? Um, I did some flow meter dilation work for my PhD using the big fancy ultrasound machines, and man, it took you quite a while to get to be good enough to get clarity to actually to see the changes. And, and granted, we're trying to use them to look at, you know, vessel changes, which are like super tiny and they're moving and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I think flow mediated dilation would be far more skill related um, or skill dependent, I guess. Yeah. The, the main thing is, if you're using it for body comp, you just have to be consistent with your pressure when you apply the probe. Sure. Um, because, as everyone knows, fat is squishy. So if, <laughs> if you put a lot of pressure, you will compress the tissue. Hey, um, I'm that, leaner. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, when we did our body comp lab, I was like, oh, three weeks out from a body, or three weeks after a bodybuilding show, and I had gained a whole lot of, or it was, probably six weeks, but I gained a whole lot of fat hmm. and, uh, the person just didn't want to make me feel bad and just took this little baby pinch of my skin fold. <laughs> I was like, Hey, 5% body fat. Um, imagine what I was 15 pounds ago when I was on stage. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, the biggest thing is the pressure, but that's really the biggest, um, skill related hurdle to get over. And once you get a hang of that, um, it's really cool, and I mean, you can look at, you, you know from working with ultrasound, I can work at, look at the exact thickness or cross-sectional area of really any muscle I want to get to. Yeah. So I know people using it to look at the rotator cuff musculature. Um, I mean, whatever you need to get to, you can get it. Oh, I think that's fascinating because even biopsy data, which is awesome, but you need bloods to get it, and a lot of subjects are real hesitant to get, you know, multiple biopsies for good reason. And they're almost yeah. always from the vastus, right? So in the quad, and it's rare that you see a biopsy from almost any other area. So I've, I've often wondered if a lot of the data we have is extrapolated just on biopsy data from one particular muscle group and how that compares to other groups. Yeah, that's a valid, uh, a valid point. But now we're getting really geeky. Um, <laughs> is anyone still out there i got two listeners um yeah. uh, last question then i know dexa has been sort of held up as like the the holy grail and i've gotten this question more than once on you know i went and got my dexa and it says i'm you know x percent um you just want to talk briefly on one if that's true and then two what is kind of the average um, error rate, so to speak, right? So someone goes and gets a DEXA and they say, I'm 21% body fat. 
what kind of range are they realistically from just walking in off the street and just getting that one measurement? Yeah. Um, so what I would say, first of all, with DEXA, um, I actually was reviewing a paper a few months back and somebody kept referring to DEXA as the gold standard. Yeah. And I was like, I'm just really not comfortable with that because it's um, just because something is newer and more expensive doesn't mean we can by default call it the new gold standard just because it takes the most gold to buy it. Um, <laughs> but but I, I still think it's a very, a very useful body comp technology. I just think that there's kind of this novelty aspect where people think because it's kind of the bigger, fancier, more expensive thing on the block that it's inherently far more accurate. Um, I would say it's as accurate as most of the other stuff out there. Um, but for, to answer your question, I think I would defer, you know, Jordan moon, right? Yep. Dr. Yeah. He's moon, talked so. a lot about that. Jordan moon has done a lot of work on body composition and he's probably forgotten more about body comp than I've ever learned. And so I remember looking through some slides that he had at an ISSN presentation yep. and his kind of overview of the data was for a group mean, assuming that all your conditions are perfect and you're using something like a bod pod or a DEXA, you might hope to get your group estimate within plus or minus two. 2%. 2%. Yeah. So you might, you might say our group average with, you know, what, 30 people was 20. So it could be 18. It could be 22. He said, same deal. Assuming you're doing everything perfect, conditions are totally ideal for an individual data point. You're looking more at plus or minus four. Yeah. Um, and so I'll, I'll defer to him on that because um, I'm, I'm almost certain I'm quoting those numbers correctly. Um, but I, I think that that it pretty much across the board, every study is going to show a little bit different. But you know, you can only hope to get your group average within a couple percentage points in either direction. And you have to intuitively assume that the individual error is going to be greater than the group error. Yep. Just mathematically. So, so yeah, I'd say it, it's always important to keep that in mind. And when I, I used to consult for some coaches with innovate elite performance and they would forward me their emails of a client saying, I got a DEXA <laughs> and it said I got fatter and lost lean mass. And it's like, you did DEXAs like three weeks apart. <laughs> and you didn't lose or gain any weight. And every change that's reported is just totally within the error range. So the reality is they were really freaking out and they had not changed their body composition at all. It was just fluctuation based on random error. Yeah. And I've talked more than one person off the cliff of the exact same thing. You know, I got a DEXA and, you know, six weeks or even six months later, oh my gosh, it says I lost two pounds of lean mass and gained three pounds of fat. And I'm like, that's well within the air of the system. And sometimes it's compounded by, you know, they moved and so they had a different DEXA do it at a different time of the day. And now you've got all these other stuff. And yeah, there, there's a newer paper that says even if you manipulate carbon take. Yes, I was just going to mention that. Yeah, I mean, it's you got to just take it at face value as a, as a rough estimate. Now, as a researcher, it's a, a tremendous tool because when we get a good enough sample, 
and we really control our conditions, we can get a very good group estimate. Yep. So it, it's not like I'm saying, oh, this stuff's worthless. And as an athlete or as a, you know, just general population client, it is nice to, to get some estimates. But um, I just wouldn't make any life-changing decisions based on a difference of one or two percentage points. Yeah, yeah. A buddy of mine in Australia, I think he said they took a person, uh, purposely carb-depleted them, shoved them in the DEXA, and then carb-repleted them the next day, shoved them back in the DEXA. And I said, I, I can't remember the exact number. I may get it wrong. But I think he said there was like a seven-pound difference in lean body mass, right? Because it's going to read glycogen as lean body mass because it's not fat, you know? And then yeah. you add, you know, hydration levels and, you know, difference from one measurement to the next, and you can be skewed pretty far one direction. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I don't blame um, people for thinking that they're getting a, a perfect value from these because the only – the only thing that made me realize the nature of body comp testing is doing it every day with about five different devices. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. But all in all, I don't want to sound overly pessimistic. Um, I think if you're getting in touch with somebody who knows what they're doing, they can really help you kind of follow the pre-test guidelines in a way that should get you a pretty good estimate. Yeah. It won't be perfect no matter how good they are, but they should be able to help you get to a point where you can at least consistently track your changes. Um, so I do believe it's useful if you have access. You just have to have a very realistic view of what number you're looking at. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I always tell people that, you know, change as few things as possible. Go to the same location. Try to get the exact same time. If you can, get the same operator, especially if you're doing skin folds. Skin folds is very dependent upon the operator. I've even oh, yeah. told people, if you're tracking your macros, have it be on, you know, the same carbohydrate intake. You know, ideally, don't train the day before. You know, just keep... Because realistically, you're only going to probably change 48 hours of your life to try to get a little bit more accurate number. And then we're still looking at the changes over time, right? So if you get one number that's off a little bit, you know, don't make any radical changes. If you come back several months later and you did everything the same and now you're kind of seeing the same trend, okay, now now we're kind of thinking maybe something's going on there, you know, so. Yeah, and, and don't ignore every other source of input, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Use your eyes. See how your gym numbers are looking. See how your weight looks. And if you look leaner, you're still strong in the gym and your weight's gone down, that's a, a pretty good indication that you've lost some body fat. Yeah, yeah, and that's the standard questions I ask, and a lot of times it's, well, my body weight's kind of down, but all my numbers are up in the gym, but this seems like I lost lean mass. I'm like, well, I don't think you did. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and you, you know, it's not a perfect system, but it works pretty good. Yeah. But um, remind me, I should send you a paper. Um, it's open access, but it actually, it, it's by some really good body comp experts in the field. And it gives a whole list of kind of pre-visit guidelines. That oh, perfect. You. Yeah, it, it's really, really nice. It's a good review paper. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I found a local DEXA unit here, and I had all these lists of these cool things I wanted to do. And, and one of them was I wanted to show up every day, three days in a row, and just get a measurement. Just 
you know, just to kind of show people that, hey, here's a, you know, realistic range of what you're looking at. And, you know, here's the pretty pictures. And, but I, like you said, for radiation, I don't think they're going to let me do that. <laughs> yeah. It's, the funny thing is, like, you know, realistically, the radiation dose is so really small. low. Super low. It's really, really low, but they, they don't like to mess around with that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, thank you very much for all your time today and talking about the new study on metabolic flexibility and getting into the weeds there on how to measure body composition and different things that people can look out for. Um, Do you have a website or any information you'd like to share? Any parting words? I don't have a website because I'm a grad student. (laughs) I'm spoken for. Yeah. But but no, if people want to get in touch, I'm on Facebook, Eric Trexler. I'm also on Twitter. Um, parting words, uh, keep listening. Mike has an awesome podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for being on here, and uh, be sure to tell Dr. Abby we all said hello. All right, will do. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, sir.